we're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we're sharing a best of show about adult beverages made and enjoyed in our islands, starting with beer. And when you think of places connected to beer, you typically think of Germany, home of Oktoberfest, or St. Louis, Missouri, site of the Anheuser-Busch's headquarters. Many don't realize that Hawaii has a long history with the beverage. The book, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, tracks the timeline from the first beer brewed in the islands in 1778 all the way to the current day. It was written by Paul Kahn, who grew up on the windward side of Oahu and who now owns a craft brewery in Pennsylvania. He took some time to trade memories and talk about his writing process with the conversations, Russell Subiono. What's the first beer you remember drinking and what's your favorite beer now? Ah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, so the first beer I remember drinking was uh, Budweiser. You know, Budweiser was sort of around when I was a kid in Hawaii. It was, you know, just part of the environment. And so when I was old enough to drink, and that was back in the day, it was 18 years old, was the legal drinking age. Uh, gives you an idea of how old I am. So, um, so yeah, that, that's really sort of the first beer I remember drinking. And, um, like, my favorite beer now, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's a tough one because, you know, I own a brewery, so i got to say my own beer. i got to right, say it's like, our. It's like your kids, right? You can't say who your favorite kid is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, you know, we make a really good uh, dark IPA. We call it Shy Ronnie. After the, the SNL character? You know, I, it, it's one of the owners has a friend who he brewed with. He did home brewing before we really sort of got started into the, the larger craft brewing where, you know, we have a brick-and-mortar place with a tap room and uh, so he just, just kind of named the first beer out of the gate uh, Shirani and it was this this dark IPA. I remember my, my grandfather used to drink Budweiser a lot too. I remember as a kid that mm-hmm. there, there was always Bud in the refrigerator. You know, I'm curious at, at what point in your life did you come to the conclusion that someone needed to tell Hawaii's story of its history with beer? You know, that that actually occurred just kind of recently, I would say, with right around 2019. And it, it's kind of a bunch of events happened at once. And uh, I, I was waiting at a craft brewery for some friends, and they were running late, and my mind was sort of wandering. Um, and I had just finished a book about the, the history of beer in the United States. And nothing in that book touched on Hawaii. Hawaii wasn't included anywhere. I'm like, really? I mean, because, you know, we have Primo. I know there's the, the old building in Kaka'ako that's still standing. And then just by complete accident, there was some ad playing on the, the radio at, at the bar. And I don't even remember what the ad was for. But it was, of course, at the end, it said something like, offer not valid in Alaska and Hawaii which we always get, and it's always like, oh, really? You know, because you know what's valid? Our, our beer history, and it sort of hit me. You know, I wonder if anybody has written about Hawaii's beer history, because we've got a story to tell. And so I did a little bit more digging. I found there was one smaller book that was written in, like, 2007. It was self-published, and I used that as kind of a jumping-off point. And then there's, like, a small journal article in an academic um, journal that I think it was about like nine pages, and I used that as kind of the jumping off point and just began digging around and, and found a publisher. Yeah, we always tend to get left out like that. I, I'm glad you, yeah. you picked it up and you decided to write the book. So what, what was your writing process like? Did you approach it like a novel or like a research paper, and was it important for you to do your research in person? Um, yes, yes to all of that. So I did, a, you know, I approached it a bit um, you know, not, not academic-y, because uh, I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write a book that was more inviting and approachable, that was accessible to both the, the beer drinker and the person who's interested in Hawaii, or, you know, Kama'aina, who didn't really know much about the beer history or sort of heard a bit about it, kind of like me. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember Primo, but, well, you know, what's the rest of the story? So um, I have a, a friend who is a historian, and he always says, you know, what's the story? What, 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 that's really what good history is about, is there's some sort of story. Uh, and so that's how I approached this. I began to think about what, what really are we trying to say about our beer history? And it began as, well, this is really about distance. You know, this is about geography. How did 
gear get to the most isolated landmass on the planet. Um, it didn't happen by accident. You know, beer doesn't just suddenly happen. People brew it and people drink it. So, so that's that's how I uh, approach that. You know, speaking of Primo, your your book is full of tons of interesting historical facts about beer making in Hawaii. Like the aluminum can was an innovation yeah. from Primo Beer in 1958, and Kauai Island Brewing Company is the westernmost brewery brewery in the country. My favorite little fact that I read was that the first beer brewed in Hawaii wasn't made on land. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so that the first beer that was recorded um, in Hawaii was actually brewed on, uh, on a Royal Naval vessel uh, by Captain James Cook. And this was just off the coast of the big island of Hawaii. Uh, and really, the, the Navy, this was kind of a medical experiment of a kind. The, the Royal Navy was, was battling scurvy, which is this sort of wasting disease that sailors get on long voyages if they don't get adequate nutrition. And so the Royal Navy had this, this idea that, well, beer, beer can prevent scurvy. So let's try this out. Uh, and one of the early experimenters was Captain Cook. So he's like, all right, well, what do, I, what do I have here to make some beer? So you sugarcane and hops to make this brew. But apparently it was, it was terrible. Not only was it terrible, but it was making the crew like, violently ill, which, of course, is bad, bad for their health. So um, according to one of his lieutenants, the crew sent a letter to Captain Cook saying, "This is this is kind of terrible, and it's hurting our health. And if you if you make us drink this beer, there there could be a problem," which Captain Cook took as a as a threat of mutiny. Uh, so he said, "Well, all right, um, everybody, let's assemble on the aft deck and and discuss this." And by discussing it, he meant, "I'm going to surround you with 20 heavily armed Marines, and I'm going to say you're going to drink this beer." because I'm going to cut your brandy rations and your food rations until you do it. So, you know, faced with that choice, uh, that's actually really when the first beer was made. It was made out of sugarcane and hops. When you think about all the historical research that you did for the book, what fact surprised you the most? You know, um, I, I have to say, other than, you know, finding out that the first beer in Hawaii was brewed offshore, um, or that the first beer brewed onshore was actually done by a Spaniard who was one of King Kamehameha the Great's advisors. That was kind of a surprise. So outside of those two things would be like the no kidding Germans from Germany who were brewers throughout Hawaii's history of beer. So a lot of breweries weren't owned by Germans, Americans mostly, but they brought in Germans. Uh, a lot of them from, you know, the mainland where they're working at Pabst or some other brewery on the mainland and, and entice them to come over. Uh, so you get some, you know, great sounding German names, you know, uh, Hartwig Harders or, um, you know, Walter Glickstein or Flickenstein. And even into the 1980s with, the, you know, the first craft brewery on Wailuka, you had Aloysius Klink. Uh, I mean, just some great German names who are no fooling Germans from, from Germany. Walter Glockner would be another one who brewed for a royal brewery that was competing with Primo in the, in the early 30s. You're listening to The Conversation and a Hanahoe interview with HPR's Russell Subiano and Paul Kahn, author of a book about the history of beer in Hawaii. I grew up here, and I think most local people born in the 70s or earlier remember Primo being the beer. And I just missed, I grew up in, an, in the era where Primo was being phased out, but I remember the Primo hats, and I remember, yeah, you know, too. nook and hair, get Primo in my ear, and a lot of things about Primo, but I don't, I don't ever remember seeing it on the shelves. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you write that Primo captured... 70% of the Hawaii market by 1969. But today, most locals would agree that Heineken is the local beer of mm -hmm. choice. And I've had this discussion with plenty of family members several times, but I'd like to know why you think that those green bottles are the most popular amongst locals. 
You know, that, that's, a, that's a real phenomenon. We call it the green bottle phenomenon. And so I'm, I'm a bit older than you are. So, I, yeah, I remember the Primo hats are made out of yarn and the, and the cans, and the aluminum cans. Are those the hats you're talking about? Yeah, you're talking yeah. about, like, the baseball hat. The, the cans, the, the can bucket <laughs> hats, yeah. Yeah, and they're kind of hard to find now. I mean, even if you go on eBay, you're like, oh, okay. But, yeah, they used to be, like, all around. And that's sort of one of my first memories of Primo wasn't the beer, but it, I think we were at a, a parade. It might have been a Kamehameha Day parade with my dad, and I was young, and I remember seeing somebody wearing one of those those hats. I was like, oh, okay. And then later on, I found out it was about beer. But, yeah, the green bottle phenomenon, and, 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 and how did Heineken do it? Um, because Heineken, a Dutch beer that is now owned by a huge conglomerate that owns so many other different types of beer. I think they own like Stella Artois and, um, you know, Bass and, and all these other kind of popular imported beers. Um, but I, but what I think happened was that uh, Primo, of course, lost market share because they had moved their, their brewing largely to California and they began to kind of dehydrate things like the wort, W-O-R-T, and then send it back to Hawaii, and it was kind of rehydrated with Hawaiian water, and it kind of tasted awful. Um, and so this is right around the moment when you had a lot of mainland beers, Budweiser, Miller, Olympia. And so you could get those for about the same price. But the green bottle phenomenon, you had Heineken kind of like, hey, this is a little bit more, but it's premium. It tastes better. And Heineken has been really good at kind of taking advantage of that. So they, you know, they, they work with a lot of charities, uh, UH Sports, for example. So th- their their marketing was was better in, in many respects than, than Primo. It wasn't until I moved back home from the mainland that I realized that Heineken was everywhere. Even, you know, yeah. every time I go to my brother's house, that's all he has in the refrigerator. So it's it's been interesting to see how that shift is. Part three of your book is a collection of mm-hmm. interviews that you did with many local people in the Hawaii brewing mm-hmm. scene. Of all the interviews that you did, what's your most memorable? Oh, man, that, that's hard um, because they were, you know, the, the men and women who were involved in brewing in Hawaii, they were, they were just interesting in and of themselves. It, it's kind of hard to, to compare each one of them, but one thing that, that stood out about all of them as a, as a collection was just the love of what they do and where they do it. So even if they're not locals, they're transplants and they become locals, it was a real sense of pride in what they do and pride because of how they serve the community uh, where they are. That local for them is local as in neighborhood, local as in you know, town. Uh, sometimes it's local in, you know, in terms of island or who's investing, like Ola, Ola Brew Company in Kona where they have so many individual investors. It's, you know, it's a great business model. Um, I, you know, I have to say, I really enjoyed talking to Mattson Davis, who was originally with Kona Brewing Company and uh, talked a lot about the, the early days of getting Kona up and running in the nineties and the challenges with that. Cause you know, it's like big Island. Why would you brew on the big Island? Why, why wouldn't you brew in Honolulu where there was Primo, where there is, a kind of a better infrastructure, um, but just the early challenges, the the building of of the brand, um, and he has just a you know, he's a great sense of humor, um, and uh, yeah, we we were on a car ride together because he had to go pick up some pl- some supplies for one of his his restaurants, um, and so as as a craft brewer myself in the business, and our brewery just turned three, it was it was kind of cool to hear. Oh yeah, here's a guy who who really worked hard to do it, and you know what can I learn? Not just the history of what I want to put in the book, but as somebody whose you know side hustle is is in brewing. So I, I really enjoyed that conversation. I have fond memories of that. The uh, when I when I moved back from from home from the mainland, Kona Brewing I think mm-hmm. had just, or at least when I was making trips back home. Kona Brewing was was at its outset, so it was nice to see that there was some uh, local beer production going on. And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, we can grow everything needed to brew beer here except for hops. Is that accurate? Yeah, more, you know, more or less. You, you, we can probably grow hops in Hawaii, but you know, it, it, 
it would be really difficult. It would be trying. Plus, you know, what kind of grain can we grow that um, would be sustainable in the long run uh, in the tropics, where it, it's actually, you know, much easier and much cheaper in many respects to get those ingredients from from overseas, um, you know, from across the Pacific. Uh, I know, for example, like Hanakoa has, has experimented with some really good New Zealand hops, and um, you know, some really tasty beers from from Hanakoa using those hops. So yeah, it's it, it's really it would be difficult to do that in a in a large scale given the climate and how much care and nurturing you'd have to put into that. Would be would be nice one day to be able to drink a, a beer fully grown and brewed in Hawaii. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the interesting thing about, say, Lanikai Brewing Company on the Windward side where I grew up is uh, Steve, Steve Homschild, who runs that place, uh, uses local yeast. He's a yeast prospector. So he will find local yeast somewhere, whether it's from a mango or he's even swabbed bellies of, of sharks for yeast and use them in brews. So that I mean that's pretty local. That's a local ingredient, <laughs> you know. Just finding uh, these yeast strains that are within the, the environment of the islands. Wow, that out, out of the bellies of sharks. Yeah, and he also managed to, and this is in in my book where he managed to convince NASA to to find space yeast. So, um, you know, they were going up in 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 this experimental not an experimental aircraft, but it's an aircraft that they used to run experiments, and with you know no cost to the taxpayer. They, they used this particular flight to capture space yeast. Um, and so he wasn't you know, really sure whether or not this yeast would be fermentable, whether you could use it to actually kick off the process for brewing. And uh, so he, he found some strains like, ah, well, this is, this is new. So there was a whole process of, okay, it, it will, not only will this be a fermentable yeast, but is this fit for human consumption? And this is an unknown one. He called it a UFO. Um, an unidentified <laughs> fermentable object. <laughs> and uh, so I think they brewed a beer, I don't remember the name, that commemorated the, you know, the anniversary of the of the moon landing. Wow, I, I learned a lot reading your book, but uh, those, are, those are incredible things to, to learn. Thanks so much for your yeah. time, Paul. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. That was Paul Kahn talking with The Conversation's Russell Subiono. His book, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, is available now. sweet it is or isn't. We're talking about honey wine, honeymead, or to be exact, Manoa honeymead. Its creator considers it a work of art. Yuki Uzuhashi is an artist, a sculptor who fell under the spell of honey and created a line of Hawaii honey wine. It's basically uh, diluted honey, water, and uh, maybe the yeast, uh, you know, just to start the fermentation. So I've done, you know, a couple of uh, batches when I, you know, just when I was just learning how to, you know, keep the bees, like that's a long time ago. But um, it was maybe about five years ago that I became more serious about making better mead with the intention of maybe possibly to release or, you know, to sell, you know, commercial honey wine that we, mm -hmm. that we make here in Hawaii. So that's, that's where we started. We produce uh, all of our batches at our, you know, honey processing facility we have here in Waihewa. We have a warehouse of, you know, uh, honey production, but also we have a tiny, you know, retail store that we uh, display all those honeys and all the mead all together. We did offering the tour at this moment, but uh, you could sort of see, you know, how, how, how things are done here. Oh, oh, yeah, from beginning to the final product. And so where are you selling your product? Um, are they in stores? Uh, you know, I hear that you're exporting uh, somewhere on the mainland. We, sh we ship to the mainland uh, individual customers, but mainly our, our market is here in Hawaii. 
you know, we distribute to, um, say, Whole Foods, both honey and mead, and Foodland, where has the R-Field wine company that they carry our mead and honey. And also, you know, we do uh, souvenir, like gift-size honey in ABC stores, and also the bottle shops that carry, you know, craft beers and wines in town area and, you know, one in North Shore. Well, I'm intrigued because I, I know for the longest time we had that one Maui company doing pineapple wine, uh, but this honey wine. So for folks who have never tasted it before, describe what they'd experience if they opened a bottle and, and, and drank a glass. Our meat is a little different than the traditional uh, mead. Traditional mead is tend to be a little sweeter and higher alcohol, and most likely people enjoy uh, room temperature. But ours is bottling style, which has nice, you know, good amount of bubbles and not too sweet. It's I wouldn't say bone dry, but it's in on on a drier side, and that we uh, call ferment the honey together with uh, local fruits like lilikoi or pineapple or mangoes, so that not just the honey flavor, but you, you could taste the actual fruits uh, within those light bubbles. And so what would you pair it with? I would pair, um, you know, with light poopoos or, you know, like cheese, crackers, and some type of meat that are, you know, very fruity that goes alone. So, you know, I wouldn't pair with that much of a heavy uh, dinners and stuff, but definitely enjoyable with lunch, brunch, or aperitif, and light food like cheese, or even maybe pasta is good, you know. You've created this value-added product, but what was it that got you interested in bees and honey? I was an art student, you know, learning in a sculpture department in Japan, but I was also seeking a theme of art that I could pursue for, for a longer period of time, not only just exhibition in, in, in a gallery or you know art shows that I could do longer involvement within that chase or finding of beauty in, in this world. And I came across the beekeeping that you know this type of action has been done you know for, for centuries from the Egyptian era. And the product itself that coming out from the activities is honey that never spoils for centuries, color of the gold, and, and it's delicious. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, this this whole, whole, whole package of action is, is just like art. So I just decided uh, to become a beekeeper to showcase this beauty from this nature uh, that was my first intention. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to express something that comes out from the beekeeping or honey production. But it turned out that it was like a, like a deep hole, the rabbit hole that <laughs> it took me down to real like commercial uh, beekeeping, you know, get into that industry. So I started in Japan, but uh, here I'm in Hawaii and still doing the same thing. That's how I see the beekeeping, that not just only um, uh, industry or the business, but also looking from the history of humans that encounter or found that bees and together that uh, they've sort of kept the relationship for, for centuries, you know, from Egyptian era, went to Europe and Europe to America and Hawaii. It's a little kind of romantic way to look at, you know, your, your industry, I guess. Well, we love going down rabbit holes. <laughs> and yeah. So, uh, right, you know, right. it's delightful because you never know what you're going to find. And it sounds like you found art in this business. True. Especially um, this meat production gave me a very different perspective than before. Because beekeeping, it's all about accepting the nature's gift that what the bees uh, produce and that's coming from the nature or environment that we keep the bees at say hawaii has certain flora that we can't change and we can't really control uh, bees to go which flowers or which you know um yeah flowers to go so it, it's all about accepting what they offer but also um this Coming to meat production is more I could involve my, my, my um, art perspective or my concept can get into that production 
where, you know, you could sort of e- inject my art perspective or inspiration. So I, I feel like I stepped a little forward or a little stepped up towards my long journey of art expression, you know, through, through the beekeeping within this uh, meat production. What are the hours of your uh, facility there in Wahewa? So we are open from Tuesday to Saturday, and it's uh, open from 9.30 to 4 on on the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And on on Saturdays, uh, we're open from 10 to 3.30. One uh, note mm-hmm. to, to, you know, honeys and stuff is that, uh, you know, Hawaii has been, you know, some people like it or not, but it's been a destination for honeymooners, you know, uh, and marketed, you know, in a certain way. But uh, actually, the the word honeymoon is coming from the month uh, that uh, newly, you know, marrying uh, newlyweds and brides that they drink the mead that bride's father brew, uh, you know, months before the uh, what do you call the wedding day. They share that mead. And, you know, weeks after that, you know, the, the sweetest uh, weeks that they're drinking mead came from, you know, became the word of uh, honey, the honeymoon. So, you know, month of honey or honey month. Well, and that... that became the word uh, honeymoon. And now there's uh, people travel, you know, uh, after the after the wedding. But that's, yeah, that's sort of said that, uh, you know, people enjoy the mead <clears throat> after the wedding. That's the, uh, the word honeymoon came from. I never heard that story. That's so interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that. But I can see how that would be a, a nice thing, you know, when you try to sell your your uh, honey mead to the honeymooners from Japan. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's a perfect place to to you know share that story. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that with us. That was Yuki Yuzuhashi, creator of Manoa Honey Mead. You can find it on select store shelves across the state. Support for HPR comes from YAKL Water in Hilo, offering alkaline water, featuring aluminum bottles, and spouted boxes designed for filling personal water bottles. Subscriptions at yakea.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Brooke Williams, author of Mary Jane Wilde, Two Walks and a Rant. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about inner and outer wilderness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. We're talking about Kuleana Rumworks. We take you to the Kauai High Coast of the Big Island to get a behind-the-scenes look at Steve Jefferson's distillery. The folks at Kuleana Rumworks make their spirits without any additives, no added sweeteners, flavors, or colors, in hopes that people can appreciate the more natural taste of the distilled sugarcane juice. Jefferson spoke with the conversation Savannah harriman Pote. Why might people not like rum? Yeah, that's easy. Um... The reason why most people don't like rum is because the vast majority of what is sold in the United States as rum has added colors, flavors, and or sugars to it. Um, there's a rule in rum making where you're allowed to add up to 2.5% by volume. 
of colors, flavors, and sugars without disclosure, and many of the rums on the market use that. We think that shouldn't be, and we do not add any colors, flavors, or sugars to anything that we make. Therefore, it's imperative that what we make tastes really good, and that's, a, that's a, I think, a huge reason why rum isn't at the, on the Premier League is with the rest of the spirits in the world, and, and it's our goal to elevate rum to the very best spirits. Mm. And this is radio, <laughs> so we don't have access to all of, our, all of our senses. We're just going ears alone. Can you describe for people what your rum tastes like? Ah, that's good. Um, we actually have four different core rums that we make, two white rums, which means that they're unaged, and then two aged rums, which means that they are that gold color because they've been in a barrel. So that's the first big differentiator. So unaged rums taste, if they're, if they're well-made, they should taste of sugarcane juice. They should taste like pineapple leaves, maybe some banana. And then there's a lot of sort of finer savory notes that we'll get in ours, like a little bit of lemongrass sometimes, maybe grapefruit pith. Things like that. And with our agricole, which is rum made from fresh sugarcane juice, you get a lot of stone fruits, which are, you know, like cherries and berry type flavors, which is really sort of surprising when you're drinking this sort of white liquid, assuming it's not going to taste like much and it's just loaded with flavors. And so what we're really trying to do is just showcase, you know, these flavors of these sugarcanes, the co that, that we grow on our farm um, with this magnificent flavors that, you know, people have been growing for 3,000 years and 1,000 years in Hawaii. And the name Kuleana, how did you come to that? That was a difficult choice, to be totally honest. A couple of people recommended that we use that name, and we were very hesitant to use it because it's obviously a very powerful word in Hawaii. But we realized that, you know, maybe we should because we really are... You know, we want to make sure that everybody understands that we do everything with, with intention and integrity and personal accountability. And what we're really trying to do is bake into our products the way that people in Hawaii live. And what makes Hawaii such an awesome place is these people and the decisions that we make. I like to call it hard choice, easy life, easy choice, hard life. A lot of people who come and visit here are sort of surprised on how easygoing it appears, and they just assume that we're lucky or we got it easy, but they don't realize it's because most of us are happy to make those hard choices because that leads to an easy life. So Kuleana for us is the rights and the privileges that you get if you're willing to be responsible for something. And so, you know, I, I, I like to equate it to people – Maybe you have had their, your child and you're coming back from the hospital and you're sitting in the car and you're kind of like, wow, now what do we do? And there's this baby in the back. That's the moment when you sort of accept the kuleana for this child. And that's a wonderful moment. And only then, if you, if you do that, can all this spectacular stuff happen afterwards. And so that's really what we're trying to do. And we're trying to share that thinking with the rest of the world, both in our product and the way we share. So people from the mainland and beyond can realize, hey, Hawaii is more than just beaches and pretty sun and this awesome sugar cane. It's, it's, it's a way of doing, and we're really trying to break that, bake that into our corporate culture, if you will. And thinking about that and thinking about what you said of your process and the physical elements of it, the ingredients that go into your rum, when someone buys a bottle of Kuleana rum to enjoy, how many people have been involved in bringing them that bottle? Oh, that's a good question, too. So to complicate things, we actually make rum two different ways. We make rum from fresh sugarcane juice, which is sugarcane that we grow on our farm that all derive from the original two or three canoe plants that arrived in Hawaii a thousand years ago. And from those two or three varieties... The Hawaiian agriculturalists developed 30-odd different varieties that are unique to Hawaii alone. And there's a gentleman named Noah Lincoln, Dr. Noah Lincoln, who got his Ph.D. discovering this and some other things about the field system. So we got cuttings of all of those canes. We regrew them on the Big Island. We cut that sugar cane. We juice it. We ferment it all within about four hours. Um, 
So from from growing to fermentation, it's four hours. It, that's a marvelous rum. And then we also find rums from all over the world and um, blend those together. So much like the world's, you know, the top chefs might find excellent ingredients from all over the place in order to create something that people haven't had before. We like to do that with rum. And again, what we're showcasing is the no colors, no flavors, no sugars. So to answer your question, like I really am enamored with, and the reason why we have the, the Voyaging Canoe, the Va'a, as our logo, is because the thought that this sugar cane has been cared for and intentionally brought with people wherever they went for thousands and thousands of years um, and Hawaii a thousand years ago. And, and what we're trying to do is carry that forward into the future. To answer your question, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people arguably have touched this. And, and it's that sort of the essence of this, this sugar cane and this Hawaii story and the story of people that like to travel and do things and make things happen that, that you know, it's almost everybody. So it's, yes, that's, what I think about when we make our rum is the intention is, is that, you know, it goes back in time, it goes forward in the future, and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people touch it. And have you yourself always been a rum drinker? I've always been a rum fan, but never a huge rum lover, because I've never had any great rum. And I don't know why I decided that I liked it, but when we were, my wife and I, left Hawaii in 2006 because we kind of foresaw the housing crisis and we were building houses at the time. So we bought a sailboat and brought our one and three-year-old daughter and son on a trip in the Caribbean and we sailed around for two years. And on that trip, we discovered, or we went to many places, including the island of Martinique. And we were really struck by Martinique because it's very similar to Hawaii. It's this volcanic island. It's almost the same latitude. And so we were just really struck with how similar this was in Hawaii, almost the other side of the world. And uh, we went to a sugarcane farm tour, and we're like, gosh, this really looks like the big island, especially like, you know, Hamakua side. And, and then we got to a distillery where they're growing their own sugarcane, and we tried the rum, and we were just, just blown away. We're, I'd like, what is this magic liquid? I've never had anything like this before. And they explain, yes, this is, you know, it's, it's made from fresh sugarcane juice, um, and it's marvelous. And less than 5% of the world's rum is made that way, I later learned. And, and as soon as we tried that, we realized we had to go back to Hawaii and do this because we thought we could do it as good or better than anybody with this amazing story and culture that we already have in place in Hawaii. And the fact that sugarcane is actually from the Pacific and has been shared by Pacific Islanders for millennia. So we realized... This was, you know, something that we could do from here better than anywhere. It's amazing. I mean, it's like your first quality, you know, espresso or, or, or for me, I equate it with um, uh, apples. You know, growing up in Hawaii, our, my apples have always come from refrigerated container cars that, you know, that are, that are meant to be good for 200 days or however long it takes it to get to market. We went to on an apple tour on the East Coast in the Appalachians. And I ate an apple off a tree, and I like looked around, like, where have you been hiding this fruit? Like, what is this fruit called? And everyone's just kind of laughing at me, going, it's an apple, dude. You know, and I'm just like, I've never had anything like it. And so I think it's moments like that, that people have traveled, you know, that's what we're really trying to do with this rum. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Last question, and this one is a listener submission. What is your status on mixed drinks? I absolutely love mixed drinks. I would change that word instead of saying mixed drink to cocktail um, because mixed drink is sort of the act of, act of putting some things together. But a cocktail, to me, is a creation um, that isn't easy to do. But, you know, like you said, when you try it, it's amazing. So I'm a huge fan of cocktails. I'm kind of glad I discovered them fairly late in life. Um, and that's really why we have the Kuleana Rum Shack which we opened in uh, Queen's Shops in Waikoloa, is we want this world-class bar to be able to share just incredible cocktails and food with people. And so you'll find us down there five, five nights a week right now, and it's, it's super fun. And do you have just a cocktail offhand that people could try for themselves that really focuses on the rum, doesn't try to mask it? 
but would be a good introduction for this beverage for people? That's a great. Oh, that's good. Okay. So I was I was before you finish asking the question, I was going to say the mai tai. Many people have had a mai tai that has a bunch of fruit juice in it. Mai tai recipe, the original mai tai recipe, does not have fruit juice in it. It has just a little bit of lime juice. So have an original recipe mai tai. But to answer your question, what we've learned to do, because we're actually trying to make our rum as a world-class spirit instead of colors, flavors, and sugars, is we'll swap out the spirit in popular cocktails with rum. So, for example, if you're a whiskey fan, you probably had an old fashioner in Manhattan Swap out your favorite spirit, you know, be it a, a bourbon or a rye, and try it with, you know, our, our age rum is Nanea. And then our, um, if you really, we call it a baller cocktail, if you use Hokule, because Hokule is a, a bit more expensive and it's is, is sold as a sipping rum. But those make incredible whiskey drinks that are, swap them out for whiskey. Um, that are super simple to make, and then on the on the light rum side, on the on the white rum side, mojito is fantastic. So it's just soda, a little. Um, our white rum is called Hui Hui, or our Agricole, a little bit of lime, a little bit of sugar, and then of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the daiquiri. So the daiquiri is kind of like a margarita, but you use rum instead of tequila, and it's the world's most simple cocktail. And it's also very difficult to pull off because if the rum doesn't taste good, it's no good. So it's, it's rum, a little bit of lime juice, a little bit of sugar. That was Kaliana Rum Works founder Steve Jefferson talking with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. The company started back in 2013 and is the only rum distiller on the Big Island. Special occasions are a perfect time to raise a glass, whether it's wine or hard liquor or shochu, a spirit most often made of sweet potato. Hawaiian Shochu Company is a small craft business that opened its doors in Haleiwa almost a decade ago. We talked to Ken Hirata, Hawaii Shochu pioneer, about the business, which recently expanded its offerings to include gin. Many people ask me what's the difference between uh, sake and shochu, yeah? Uh, both are native to Japan, and uh, sake is a brewed alcoholic beverage like wine or beer. Shochu is a distilled spirit, uh, similar to whiskey, vodka, gin, rum, Korean soju. So the sake is brewed, shochu is distilled. That's the main difference between those two. Is the yeah. alcohol content higher then? That's true. Shochu is much drier and stronger. And so tell us... How you got into this business? Because you've been around for a while. Yeah, this is our ninth year, and uh, we're gonna be. It's gonna be the tenth year next year. The reason is Poi. Poi brought me here. Yeah, one day when I was visiting Hawaii from Japan, I was eating Poi, and then I thought, oh, if they have something like this in Hawaii, maybe we can make shochu because Poi is a fermented food from roots of taro. But that time I was just joking with my friends. I didn't know anything about making shochu. But the, the idea came back to me uh, like 10 years later, and I thought, oh, it would be fun to make shochu in Hawaii. So I became uh, an apprentice under my master in Kagoshima and learned uh, shochu making from him, and now I'm making shochu in Hawaii. Wow. So it was that difficult to do, to learn under a master like that? Yeah. Uh, it was like a kung fu movie. You <laughs> have to knock the door of the master and uh, beg to become his uh, apprentice student. And uh, of course, I got rejected many times and, until I finally got accepted. And so how long did you study under him before you moved here to the islands? Oh, I was with him for three years. That was a crash course because I was almost like 40 years old those, ta- those, those days. So he said, um, stay with me for three years. Um, and then you can be independent because if he said uh, if you stay longer, it's gonna be, you're gonna be too old to start your own business. And so when you came to Hawaii, 
how did that all work? Because you had to find enough sweet potato to make a go of it. Yeah, actually, many varieties of sweet potatoes all over available all over Hawaii. And I didn't have any difficulties to find sweet potatoes here in Hawaii. And then the fact that, you know, you've set up shop on the North Shore. I understand you also do tours? Yeah, I do tours, but this place is more like a one-man operation. I'm the only one. So I do tours only when I have time, maybe once or twice a week. And so how would you explain the type of shochu that you produce there? Oh, uh, that's a good question. We apply a traditional handcraft shochu making technique that I learned from my master in Japan. But uh, all the elements of Hawaii is in a shochu. So our shochu made from Hawaii-grown sweet potatoes with Hawaii water and everything is so special compared to the ones from Japan. So how different would it be? Many people say ours has a distinctive aroma compared to the ones from Japan. I think all the elements of Hawaii, like the sea breeze, the soil conditions or climate conditions, that influences our shochu. I understand that you also just recently started distilling a gin. Yeah, I try to source ingredients as local as possible. Yeah, And in order for me to introduce more Hawaii-grown produce, I thought gin would be a great idea because we can use all the botanicals. So we use the Hawaii-grown botanicals, including jabon, tea leaves, hibiscus flowers, limu from the ocean, those kinds of produce from Hawaii. And then what makes gin different from shochu? Ah, what makes gin gin is the juniper berries. We added juniper from Italy, but other than that, we added all the Hawaii-grown botanicals. So if you add botanicals to the shochu, that becomes, including the juniper berries, that becomes gin. Okay, so yeah, so it just gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult for me to explain all over the radio. Well, what do you think your teacher would say if he tried uh, some of your gin and your shochu? I don't know, did you send him any? Actually, before this pandemic started, he came to Hawaii every year. He uses me as an excuse to visit Hawaii. <laughs> and every time he came, he, of course, tried my shochu. The funny thing is he didn't say anything so far. He hasn't said anything. Ah. I think that's a good sign. Yes. <laughs> uh, but then the fact that he comes back again and again. Yeah. Every year he used to come to visit us. How much of the shochu and the gin do you produce, and, and where can people find your product? We produce 6,000 bottles of shochu every year, which is a very small scale. And um, our shochu and gin are available at the production site in Haleiwa only because we don't distribute to any retail stores or we don't even ship uh, due to the limited volume of production. So people have been really supportive and kind. They come all all the way to Haleiwa to pick up their orders. And so what do you pair it with? Oh, good question. Shochu is really dry compared to sake, so rich flavored food like curry chicken, shoyu pork, miso butter fish, that type of rich flavored food pair really, really good with shochu on the rocks. Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> My taste buds are, are, are salivating. And then what about the gin? Oh, gin you can enjoy by itself, but our gin is really, really soft. So many people enjoy just on the rocks, but you can make it through cocktails with tonic water. I mean, gin and tonic, or many people make it to martini. And, you know, we did get a chance to talk to a gentleman who was making spirits with things like ulu. Do you experiment with other things besides sweet potato? Yeah, we have tried ulu. We made shochu with ulu once, and we made shochu with pineapple and uh, sweet potatoes and all kinds of uh, Hawaii produce. So this time we made ginia, so we were able to use those botanicals from Hawaii also. So it sounds like you're having a lot of fun <laughs> with your business. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the fact um, that, that you'll be yeah. celebrating your 10th year. So as you reflect back on that first bite of poi, 
when you discovered huh. Hawaii and what it had to offer. Share your thoughts about that. Hawaii has been really kind and supportive to us. So we are so happy to make sure you in Hawaii, surrounded by people in Hawaii and all the supporters. Yeah, we are so grateful. And so we raise a glass and say kampai to Ken Harata of the Hawaiian Shochu Company, which is located in Haleiwa. You can find his products at his shop or at select island restaurants. It's Aloha Friday, no work till Monday. It's Aloha That does it for today's special Pauhana Hanaho show. If you miss any of this show or want to find a past one, find them all on the conversation page with links to more information about guests and topics. Just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. Our producers are Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Sobiono, and Lillian Song. John DeMello provided our backyard quiz, Oli, and our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.